happy Thanksgiving week, by the way. I actually had to write that down to remember because I probably wouldn't have remembered to say that. So I actually said it. There we go. Check that one off. Think about, think about something you're thankful for. Just real quick, think about something you're thankful for and share that with your neighbor. Just, just super quick. Just what, what is it that you are so thankful for this week? And share that real quick. It's okay. You can talk to your neighbor. That's good. It's good stuff. It's good to share that Thanksgiving with each other. It's good to share those praise reports for sure. And to, to actually put some words to it. Something I'm, I'm super thankful for. I, I have the, the cutest daughter in the world. And uh, I'm just, I'm so thankful that, that she is getting raised up in the faith here at this church. And it's awesome. I mean, I have two boys. I could say the same thing about them. But it's particularly this week, it's awesome because I, I was kind of on my phone scrolling through, looking at some friends updates on Facebook and whatnot. And, and BJ's photo popped up. And you guys know BJ. She's, she's like one of the youth leaders downstairs, and she's also one of the um, youth leaders uh, in high school. And my daughter sees her face pop up on the screen, and she's like, oh, Daddy, I love her. She's, she's just so nice. She's so nice to me, Daddy. And I, I love that. It's the cutest thing in the world to hear that. And, but she calls her teacher. It's the greatest thing. That, that's, that's BJ's name is teacher. And that's, that's the cutest thing. So I'm, th- I'm super thankful for that. We have so much to be thankful for. Um, so I hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving. Um, okay, so, so that, we're, we're going we're gonna to actually just jump right into it. There's no transitions for this. There's, there's no transitions. They go from Thanksgiving introduction to looking at this word rejection. Because think about this word, rejection. Think about it. We, we probably have some associations with this word. Probably not good associations. You're, you're wondering, am I trying to make enemies with you? Am I trying to like, what am I trying to do here? Right out the gate. Rejection, it's something that haunts us. It really does. As humans, it haunts us. It can be debilitating. It can have a very debilitating effect on us, on our lives. And it can halt our emotional progress in really deep, severe ways. And most likely, it's just my assumption, we've all been there to a certain degree in our life. We've all been there. We've all experienced this, uh, this emotion, emotional attachment to this word rejection. If you haven't yet, well, I'm here to share the good news that you're going to experience some sort of rejection maybe sometime in your life. Um, and so it's like you, you, you go to new environments, you go to different places, and, and you have sometimes tucked away in the back of your mind, will they like me? Will they accept me? What is this experience going to be like? And this starts early on in childhood, in the playground. It continues throughout junior high and even in high school where, where you know, the boy has a crush on a girl and then the boy has the feelings for the girl and... And he's hoping, he's hoping, just beyond a shadow of a doubt, that 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 girl is also going to reciprocate some of those feelings back towards him. And then he musters up enough courage, and then he goes and asks, will you go out with me one day? Hoping that he's not going to get rejected. Because he's heard horror stories of other times where other people have been rejected, but he's going to take that step of faith and he's going to do it. I've been there. Um, And, you know, those are smaller steps to the bigger question. It's like, Will you marry me? Hopefully by that point, you know that there's some reciprocation happening. Hopefully, hopefully. 
If you don't know that, then you should talk to a pastor and get some counseling and some advice. Um, and then, you know, what other things, other practical things, like applying for college, other things like applying for a job. I mean, there's, there's always this kind of like wall of rejection. There might, there might be some sort of rejection. What about going out for a sport? What about a job promotion? Okay, so what about, what about things that are a bit more serious? Like what about abandonment? What about children abandoned by their parents? That goes deep in the heart. That sticks around for a while. And what about, what about parents or children also abandoning their parents? Vice versa. That, that goes deep. That hurts. Rejection is painful. But, you know, it's part, it's part of our human experience. And I have up here seven things. I was just doing some research about rejection in general. And I just want to walk through. I think this is important to set the context for what we're going to be reading in the scripture here this morning. This, this is super important. So rejection piggybacks on physical pain pathways in our brain. So I'm just going to read some stuff here for you guys, some research. The same areas of the brain become activated when we experience rejection as when we experience physical pain. That's pretty intense. This is why rejection hurts so much, neurologically speaking. In fact, our brain's response to, uh, so similarly to rejection, responds so similarly to rejection and physical pain that, point number two, we can relive and re-experience social pain more vividly than we can physical pain. Try recalling an experience in which you felt significant physical pain and your brain pathway will respond, meh. In other words, that memory alone won't elicit physical pain. But try reliving a painful rejection and you will be flooded with many of the same feelings you had at that time. And your brain will respond much as it did at the time too. Our brain prioritizes rejection experiences because we are social animals who live in tribes or communities. This leads to an aspect about rejection we often overlook, which is point three. Rejection destabilizes our need to belong. Just negative thing after negative thing after negative thing here. We all have a fundamental need to belong to a group. When we get rejected, this need becomes destabilized and the disconnection we feel adds to our emotional pain. Reconnecting with, other, with those who love us or reaching out to the members of groups to which we feel strong affinity value us and accept us, has been found to soothe emotional pain after a rejection. That's the beauty and value of community. Feeling alone and disconnected after a rejection, however, has an often overlooked impact on our behavior. So point four, rejection creates surges of anger and aggression. 2001, the Surgeon General of the U.S. issued a report stating that rejection was a greater risk for adolescent violence than drugs, poverty, and and gang membership. Countless studies have demonstrated that even mild rejections lead people to take out their aggression on innocent bystanders. School shootings, violence against women, and fired coworkers going postal are other examples of the strong link between rejection and aggression. However, much of that aggression elicited by rejection is also turned inward. It just gets worse. Rejections send us, point number five, on a mission to seek and destroy our self-esteem. Blaming ourselves and attacking our self-worth only deepens the emotional pain we feel and makes it harder for us to recover emotionally. 
But before you rush to blame yourself for blaming yourself, keep in mind the fact that point six, rejection temporarily lowers our IQ. Look at just this downward spiral. It just gets worse and worse. Being asked to recall a recent rejection experience and relive the experience was enough to cause people to score significantly lower on subsequent IQ tests. Tests of short-term memory and tests of decision-making. Indeed, when we are feeling from, uh, reeling from a painful rejection, thinking clearly is just not that easy. This explains why, last point, we're going to move on. Rejection does not respond to reason. How sad is that? Participants were put through the experiment in which they were rejected by strangers, even being told that the strangers who had rejected them did not actually reject them, uh, did little to ease the emotional pain participants felt. Even being told that the strangers belonged to a group they despised even, such as the KKK, did little to soothe people's hurt feelings. Rejection is powerful. It's powerful. And I think... This is the major issue that Paul is bringing up at this point in the book of Romans. So we get to wrestle with this. Now, what what am I doing here by putting all this, all these like facts out here, just out out front? Not trying to shoot myself in the foot. I'm not trying to say like we can't reason because this is what the world says. Like this is this is the end result. This is the research that the world comes up with. But guess what? Guess what? God actually says, "Come reason with me." Let's talk about this. Let's focus on that pain that rejection has caused. Let's deal with it. Put it on the table. Let's talk. That's what God wants to do with it. And the thing is, when we, when we hear that word rejection, and again, before we get into the text, it's important to kind of set this groundwork. When we hear that, we bring all that baggage with us. If we've experienced that personally, we bring that baggage into this conversation that Paul's about to have with us. And we can, that baggage can prevent us from having a real, honest relationship with God, the very thing that he's after. Okay? So, let's jump into the text then. I think this is Paul's main point. This is what we're going to, we're just going to be circling around this point here. Because this is, this is the encouragement of the scripture. This is what the text says. This is, what, this is what Paul says here, inspired by the Spirit. I say then, God has not rejected his people. I've rhetorically asked the question, has he? Like, has he done that? Has God rejected his people? He says, may it never be. That's like the strongest expression Paul could come up with in the Greek language. Like just, genoita. may it never be. God's not going to reject his people. No way. No way. He says, For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of, of Benjamin. Now, if you're going to remember one thing this morning, or if you're, going to, if you're a note taker and you're going to write down one thing, well, shame on you, you should be writing down more than just one thing and remembering more than one thing, hopefully. Um, but this is it. This is the main idea. This is the main idea, you guys. God has not rejected his people. We're going to be circling this idea as we, as we go through the next five verses together. This is the big idea of the text. And so, to prove, Paul's going to go into like proof mode here. All right, as a good rabbi, trained up, 
in his traditions, he's going he's to go into proof mode because Paul, being a good rabbi, a good Jew of that day and age, he would have to get into all sorts of various debates with people. And Jewish rabbis, they would, they would always have to list, okay, here's my proof for why I can make such a strong point. So Paul made a really strong point. God doesn't reject his people. Okay, so he's going to go into three specific proofs, three reasons why he believes that, and he's actually living his life to go tell other people about that. Three things. So Paul himself, he's going to say, okay, look at my life. First and foremost, Paul says, look at me. And elsewhere, Paul, is, Paul says, like, um, follow me as I follow Christ. So this is, this is a, of the same nature as other writings of Paul. So he's going to say, look at my, look at my life. And then evidence number two that we're going to get to is God's foreknowledge. Okay, so if, if Paul himself isn't enough for his Jewish audience to believe, then he's going to take it a step above, and obviously taking a step above is a good thing. He's going to say, well, God already has this foreknowledge. That's, that's some more evidence there. And then, if that's not enough for his audience, he's going to say, look at what the Word of God says. And when we look at the Word of God, he says, we've got to trust, we've got to believe the Word of God. And so he's going to quote some scripture. And so here, I'm going to spend probably the most time talking about Paul himself, a little bit of time talking about the foreknowledge, and then the word of God bleeds into the last section where we're going to kind of just land the plane and ask the big question, how are we going to apply all of this in our life? Okay, so I like to think about scripture. Okay, so I think it's fair. If C.S. Lewis described heaven using the illustration of an onion. I think I can use the, the idea of an onion to describe the scripture because I really do see that layer after layer after layer unfolding here as Paul is going to go through his different proofs. And he's just going to say, okay, check out this idea here. And he's going to peel back that layer. He's going to look at this idea too. He's going to peel back that layer. He's going to say, look at this idea too. And he's going to continually just going deeper and deeper and deeper trying to root them and ground them in the scripture. Ultimately, that's where he's headed. So that said, he's, we already said, okay, that's his main point. God doesn't reject his people. But look at now, he's going to go into the proof of that. Again, evidence number one, Paul says, look at me, look at my life. I'm an Israelite. I'm an Israelite. He says right there, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so Paul right now, he's just, he's just kind of like throwing out these terms that the Jewish person would automatically in their mind have immediate background and context and culture and they would just be tracking with Paul immediately. They'd get it. They'd be responding to him. They'd be like, okay, <clears throat> so he's talking our language. He's talking, talking stuff that makes sense in our minds. He's totally name dropping here. He's just name dropping. He's like an Israelite from Abraham, that guy you really appreciate, and tribe of Benjamin, okay? Name dropping. It's kind of like uh, that one time that I served Michael Buble at the Heathman restaurant. It was great. It was awesome. Or that other time that I was over in France and I ran into Will Smith and I met Will Smith. Or, or I should say that more accurately, he met me. Like there, there, was, there was something there. And he, he probably remembered me. I was the crazy fan that just like went right through his little entourage, like his, his little wall of, a huge wall of bodyguards and stuff. And I just like, bam, made a beeline right for him. So see what I did there? I just name dropped. And, and, and immediately, as 21st century cultural snobs that we are, we get who Michael Bublé is. Okay, so media, music, this is who this guy is. Will Smith, okay, he's made all these movies. Okay, we know just by throwing out those names. The Jewish person is no different. They're understanding what Paul is doing here by throwing out these names. They get it. They're like, okay, so Israelite, Abraham, Benjamin. So let's talk about this. <clears throat> and I want to I try, hopefully, to get through these. So 
Paul's proof there is himself. So let's look at the first, first phrase here. I don't know if this is working. I'm trying to hit the beep. There we go. Okay, so the first thing, when, the Israel, when, when someone, a Jewish person, hears this word, like Israelite, they immediately think, and a lot of other things, I'm sure, too, but just real quick here, they think God's chosen people. That's, what that's where they go to. In the Old Testament, they're like, Deuteronomy 14 says that this is God's chosen people. Okay? So that, that's, the, that's the cultural background and history that they bring into that phrase. Another one, of Abraham. A great nation. God called Abraham out and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. So immediately they have that also now with a context that Paul is trying to argue. And the other one, a Benjamite. Okay, well this, is, this one's kind of strange because back in the book of Genesis, Jacob gave this kind of weird blessing over Benjamin. He says, you're a ravenous wolf. I mean, how would you like that? Like your parents, like they're giving blessings to everyone and they come to you and they're like, you're a ravenous wolf. Okay, so that one actually catches my attention here. So this is the one that we're going to wrestle with for a little bit here. A ravenous wolf. Okay? This one's interesting. Because this one, uh, Benjamin, is a mixed bag of, of historical oddities in the scripture. And so let's do a quick survey of who is Benjamin then. Well, the scriptures tell us Benjamin's warlike. Okay, we've got some passages there to prove that. Benjamin is a deliverer. Some more passages there to prove that. Ehud, remember he went to Eglon and like stuck that sword right deep in his belly and he's like, I died and he was a deliverer. Gave Israel like 80 years of of respite and relief. Okay, so warlike deliverer. Benjamin is the smallest of the tribes. Okay, and that's when Saul was chosen as king and he's like, why would you choose me? I'm like, I come from the smallest tribe. What's up with that? And then, some more information about Benjamin. The people, Israel, chose a Benjamite and rejected God. So do you see how Paul is taking layer after layer? He's trying to get them to think about the, the scripture here. And when he says, again, this is the odd one, why bring up Benjamin? That's just a, if I'm going to be name dropping, I'm going to say someone like Michael Bublé or Will Smith. I'm not going to say someone you don't know or someone you don't really care about. And so, so why, again, why would Paul bring up Benjamin? Because it just doesn't make sense according to this list so far. And that Benjamite, was Saul, the first king of Israel. And God, when, he, when, when Samuel was just so bummed out, he went to God and says, what are they doing? Why, why are they doing this? God says, don't worry, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. What does God say? They're rejecting me. So this is a great layer to consider in, in Paul's theology. And the point that he's trying to make is what? God does not reject his people. Although... In Israel's history, the people have rejected God time and time and time again. This is the point that we're going to hover around. This is the theme of the scripture. This is the beautiful thread of redemption. God doesn't reject his people. He doesn't. That's not, that's not who God is. That's not his character. Okay, so some more here. Benjamite was used by God to preserve his people. And that's the story of Esther. It's a beautiful book. God working behind the scenes, preserving his people who stayed behind in the foreign nation, keeping them alive, even in a foreign nation. And they got there because of all the wrong things that they've done. Even in a foreign nation, God's like, I'm not going to reject you. I'm not going to reject you. He doesn't do that. It's not the God we serve. It's too faithful. And then ultimately, here is both the Old Testament looking forward 
already considering everything about Benjamin in the Old Testament, and Ezekiel says, and this group's going to get an inheritance. What? Like after, after this like mixed bag of history of, of sometimes doing the right thing and delivering, but other times just really not. Ezekiel says this group in the kingdom of God in the future, they're going to be partakers of the spoils of the kingdom of heaven, even this group. That's good news for us. And we're going to get to that in a second. That's really good news for us, you guys. And Revelation, John the Apostle affirms that in the book of Revelation. They're going to have a share. So a quick summary then. Uh, Benjamin is small, warlike, deliverer. And again, this is what they would have in mind. This is, this, this is what the Jewish person would hear. But they would also recall one crazy story in the Old Testament. There's one horrific story in the Old Testament that the Jewish people are, are well aware of. And it's actually probably one of the most embarrassing stories of the Jewish people in their history. And that story, it comes from the book of Judges. Judges 19 through 21. Horrible, horrible story here. Too much to get into, but here are some summary points. This story is filled with sexual abuse. The story is filled with violence. The story is filled with civil war, internal struggle between most all of Israel and Benjamin. It's disturbing. It's horrible. It's like you, you look at this book and it says they were only ever doing that which was right in their own eyes. So you get to the end of a story like that and no wonder they're tearing each other apart. Their community, they're rejecting each other. As they are rejecting God as a community, they're now rejecting each other. And there's just no safety in that community at all. And so they begin to turn on each other. And this story is sad, you guys. But it's very important here for Paul because wickedness occurred in Benjamin, in that tribe. And they wouldn't listen to Israel. As a result, they were almost severely cut off. Completely. Benjamin was described as missing from Israel and cut off. That's pretty strong language. But here's the thing. Israel did their best, led by God, to still preserve Benjamin. This, I think this is extraordinary in terms of what Paul is doing here. For Paul to describe himself from the tribe of Benjamin, do you realize what he just did there? A moment now, a moment in, his, in Israel's history, Benjamin probably should have been the tribe that was cut off. They did some pretty horrible things and approved of horrible things in Gibeah. Just go back and read Judges 19 through 21. You look at that story and be like, why didn't God just reject them at that point? Because God, this is Paul's point. Even when it gets that bad, God doesn't reject his people. You guys, that's good news for us. Even when it gets that bad, this is the God we serve. It doesn't reject us. It didn't reject Benjamin. And that's why Paul brought that up. So, again, summary, if there was ever a tribe that should have been rejected at the outset of Israel's introduction into the land, it probably should have been, and almost was, the tribe of Benjamin. So, here, do you see what Paul's doing? Now, that's how a Jew would think about that. All, that. all that background, that history, that culture, boom, implanted, just in, in that word. It's intense.
So, moving forward here. If that's not enough, we can ask, the, I think, a, a deeper question, more personal for Paul's experience. Maybe even this is, I think, where it gets more personal for us. Like, who is Paul? Who was this guy, Paul? At one point, at one point, he was Saul. We, we can't miss this, you guys. Saul, he says, he's a Benjamite. So he, he has that warlike mentality flowing through his veins. He's part of that tribe. And it says here, in Acts, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. The same blood that was flowing through Benjamin throughout all of its history is now flowing through Paul. And he, as it says in the book of Acts, is persecuting Jesus himself. Because you guys know the good news, because if there was ever anybody that should have been rejected at the outset of the church, it should have been Saul of Tarsus, should have been this guy. Why would God accept him? He did, ab- and this is the good news, he did absolutely nothing to earn God's grace. He did absolutely nothing to be God's gracious choice. Nothing. Okay, we're going to get, we're going to come, we're going to circle back to that idea here. God did not reject Saul of Tarsus, rather he was merciful toward him. These are the big themes that are coming out of the book of Romans in this section. God says, I am going to have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'm going to be compassionate. I'm going to give compassion and be compassionate towards those whom I want to have compassion on. It's a big idea coming out right here. And Paul says, I'm a recipient of that. I have that grace. Look at my life, Paul says. Beautiful. So, moving forward here. So, so God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. This, this is point two. So this is going to go by a little quicker, I said. Because this is more of a logical argument. At this point, he's, he's saying God's knowledge is proof. Okay, so God, God has knowledge about who he's choosing, and so that's why this is a logical argument. Check this out. The word foreknew simply means to choose beforehand. He made a choice before any of that happened. Don't worry, those are tears of joy. It's okay, I get that. And here's the question that I would ask, and this is the logical thing. Is it possible for God to reject a person he chooses? Just in your mind, real quickly answer that. It's just a logical question. I would say, like as Paul answers, may it never be. Like he uses strong language. Like it's not possible. Logically, it's simply not possible to choose someone ahead of time and then to come around back and say, I reject you at the same time. It's just not possible. That kind of stuff can't happen. So Paul says, may it never be. So that's a logical argument there. Okay, moving forward. I said these points are going to come a little quicker at us. Or do you not know what the scripture says? So now Paul's going to point to the scriptures here. And now he's going to single out someone else again. He's name-dropping again. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what is Paul doing as he is name-dropping? We have to ask the question, okay, why, why is he pointing us to Elijah, this person? The third piece of evidence, the word of God is proof. Because he says, do you not know what the scripture says? That's a good question to ask ourselves when I'm feeling rejection. Do I not know what the scripture says about this? 
do I really not know? And, and so we, we have to ask ourselves, just as Paul is asking about Elijah, what does it say about Elijah? So we can quickly go through this. Who was he? He was like one of the favorites, like of the Jewish boys and girls growing up. They, they loved Elijah. There's so many stories about Elijah. Defeated the prophets of Baal, prayed that it wouldn't rain. It didn't for a long time. Prayed the fire would come down and consume the enemy. And then he was, at the end of his life, like taken up in a chariot of fire and horses of fire. It's like, this guy is amazing. It's like, no wonder the boys and girls of that culture and day love to hear these stories. They just loved it. It's awesome. But then also, you kind of come to these passages in Scripture where it says, he was also afraid at times. He wasn't always that mighty miracle worker that we know of. It says, in fear, he ran away from people. And James in the New Testament says, Elijah was a man kind of like you and me. Just kind of like similar passions, desires. And so Paul is going to exploit some of those passions and desires from Elijah. So this is what Elijah says. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altar. They, and I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. Notice his language here. They, they, they. He's pointing his finger at the people that he's seen absolutely fail before God. And he's saying, they're all messing up. All of them, Lord, they're all messing up. So at that point, what is Elijah doing? He is separating himself from them. He's, he's rejecting them because of what they're doing. But what does God say? What does God say? It's a beautiful response. Beautiful response. Check this out. The divine response to Elijah, someone who's pointing the finger out there at they, building up this wall, making a bigger divide between us and them, God says, it's okay, Elijah. I have 7,000, 7,000 people, 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal at all. They're there. And this reminds me of a passage that we read earlier a couple, couple of months ago back in Romans chapter 9 where Paul quotes Isaiah and Isaiah says, though, the, though, though Israel be like the sand of the sea, that's a pretty big number, I, the remnant will be saved is what God says. There's a remnant. Again, 7,000 in comparison to like millions of children of Israel during that time. Doesn't seem like a big number, but here's, here's what I take away from this. If I'm ever in feeling like Elijah at this point, the remnant's bigger than you think it is. God's people, it's bigger than you think it is. Elijah thought it was just him. God says, no, it's not. It's actually 7,000. It's actually 7,000 people. And the remnant is bigger than we think. And that's, that's awesome. So in the same, the same way, Paul says, in the same way as it was back then, there's, there's also been, during this present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Now, now, grace would no longer be grace, I don't think, if you could earn it through works. And that's where Paul is headed here. Grace can't be grace if you could earn it. And so he finishes by this point here. And if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And notice he's highlighting the word grace here, tucking works right there in the middle, making sure that we completely understand this is about grace. This is about grace. 
And so here, I, I, I truly believe two themes surface as a result of this. After Paul walks us through these verses, after he makes his point and proving it with all, the, all this evidence, pointing us ultimately to the word of God and Elijah's experience, two themes surface. God's foreknowledge and God's gracious choice. These are kind of bookends that hold this section together. God has chosen you, is what Paul is saying to this group in Rome, both Jews and Gentiles. He's chosen you. And if he's chosen you, that's a gracious choice. It's a gracious choice. And that's why Paul says it has nothing to do with works. That's a really hard thing for us to hear, I think. Just my hunch. I don't think I'm the only one that struggles with that. That's a hard thing to hear. Why? Because we live in a culture that is so works-based. Almost everything we do is works-based. You work really hard at your job, work, 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 work. Your boss notices that you're working, 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 working. You see the, uh, the job promotion application there and you fill it out and you turn it in. I've, and you go to your boss and say, look at all the good stuff I've done. Look at me now. Can, can you accept me? And they have the right at that point to say yes or no. They can reject you or they can accept you. And, and since we live in that kind of a culture, that kind of a world, we also bring that baggage into this relationship with God. And that's why Paul here has to correct that thinking in us that can creep up even 11 chapters into Paul's great presentation of this gospel that he's not ashamed about. It can creep up in our heart where we can begin to think, what, I, what do I got to do? What do I got to do to get your attention, God? What do I got to do? So I think if I can encourage you with a couple of practical things to do, a couple of practical things. The first thing I would encourage you guys to do is to just give thanks. Give thanks for what God has done for you. The fact that you don't have to do anything to earn this salvation, the fact that you don't have to do anything to look good enough to please God, and He heals you, He heals you, He saves you, and you don't do anything for that. There's reason to give thanks there. And as I was thinking about that, there's stories all the way throughout the scripture that teaches this point. Jesus would even teach this. Ten lepers that were healed. How many actually came back and gave glory and praise and thanks? How many? One. And to that one, not the others nine that was healed, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. They were already, he was already healed. He was, it was already a done deal. But Jesus looks at him and says, it's your faith that now makes you well. And Paul is saying the same thing in the book of Romans. Your faith in God makes you well. Not your works. Not your works at all. Not the works. And it was one leper that came back and actually gave thanks. It, it's a hard thing for us to do, I think, again, because we're, we're always trying to think, how, how can I just repay someone? And so this last summer, uh, our family was just gifted uh, a trip to go to Hawaii with my mom. Because as many of you guys know, like my mom has cancer. She's battling. She's she could she could possibly pass away in the next three months. She could have up to 12 months, but she's battling it. So her best friend says, I want to give you a gift. 
I want to send you guys somewhere that's just going to be a blessing. And she did. There's no way in my life I could probably ever afford a trip that she sent us on. We were living like kings for like 13, 14 days. It's insane. Now here, this would be weird. If, if after that amazing trip, came back home, was thinking, okay, how am I going to, because I'm in my American culture mode here, how am I going to repay this person for what they just did for me? Oh man, I got to think of something great. Okay, so on a teacher's salary, okay, I gotta, I'm going to do the best I can. So I'm going to go to Starbucks, I'm going to get a little thank you note, and put a $5 gift card in there to Starbucks. Send it to her and say, thank you. I hope this is good, repay, good enough repayment for you. That would be the silliest thing in the world. It would just be ridiculous. And I think sometimes we try to give God a $5 gift card of spiritual work that somehow compares to the work of the cross. Impossible. There's no way that can happen. Not in a billion, gazillion, trillion, eternal amount of time. We can never repay God in that sense. And so simply God's saying, from a position of humility, I just want you to say thank you, because I love you already. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And from that position of thanksgiving, because I think there's more. I think there's more that God wants us to do with that. He wants us to go and tell other people about it now, too. Okay? Mind you, this section, the first six verses, um, follow, obviously, Romans chapter 10, and we are already taught Romans chapter 10, and what happened in Romans chapter 10, Paul says something about your feet, right? What, is, what does Paul say about your feet? Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who go out and actually share the good news. So this section is embedded... Again, context is important in this, in this idea that Paul wants you to do something with that relationship that you have with him now. God wants, God wants you to do something with that. So he says, how then, will they, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as, it, as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. You guys, you may not think your feet are beautiful. And they're probably not. I mean, I'm not trying to compliment your feet. But what it's saying here, the good news that you can bring to someone, how beautiful is that? Seriously. The fact that this God has saved and redeemed you, and you get to go tell people about that? Beautiful. But sometimes we, we, we hit this wall, and I said I was going to circle back to it, we hit this wall that we might be rejected by the person that we're sharing that good news with. Well, guess what? We get to experience the sufferings of Christ in the very same way that Christ himself experienced rejection from people. And that's what the early church, they counted it all joy when they experienced those kind of struggles and tribulations and trials. They counted it all joy, you guys. And so the very thing that can keep us from actually moving forward and sharing and telling someone this good news could be the very thing that we don't believe about God, that he can accept us. Because we think that other people are going to reject us as we go and share this good news with them. And Paul anticipated that. Again, we learned this already. Paul says, however, they did not all heed the good news. They didn't all heed it. 
And guess what? When you go out and share the gospel with someone, I don't know if you've done it recently, but when you go out and share the gospel with someone, they may not accept it. But is that up to you? Does that mean you shouldn't share the good news with them? No. No. Because, because Jesus taught us that we're supposed to be sowing the word of God. And the word of God lands on all different types of soils, all different types of hearts. And it's up to God at that point. And, and he's faithful. Thank God he is faithful. Not me. I simply get to go out and share that. And you know what? I'm not always faithful in that. But God is faithful to communicate who he is. So here's the illustration that I want to leave you with here. Let's say you go to your favorite coffee house, your favorite barista, and they look at you and they say, wow, you've been coming here for a while. I just want to, I'm choosing you. Choosing you. I'm going to give you unlimited coffee. Unlimited coffee. You can come here every single day. You can come here three times a day and I will give you coffee. And guess what? I want you to go tell a friend about that unlimited coffee. I want you to go invite one friend, bring them back this next week, and I will begin to give them unlimited coffee too. At first, when you hear that, you'd probably want to try it out. You'd want to see, is that really true? I'm going to go for a week and find out if there really is unlimited coffee. And then you find out, okay, it's true. And then you get enough courage because you're like, hey, I've experienced it. I've tasted and seen that the coffee's good. And you want to go and experience sharing that with someone else now because it's just been so good to you. And then you go out and share with someone. What are are they immediately going to think? That's too good to be true. There's no way someone in Portland's going to do that. You know how hard it is to pay rent here in Portland? It's nuts. No one's going to do that. And so, so you might experience rejection. But here's the thing. That's a silly example because guess what? We've been given unlimited grace, unlimited favor, unlimited love that we get to experience every single moment. And God is telling us right now, I really believe this, like God's telling us, you've experienced that. As it says in the book of Psalm, you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Are you going to go share that with someone else? Are you going to take time in your life, in your busy life, because I know we're busy, but are you going to take time in your life to actually go share that good news with someone Right now, I want you to think about think about someone this week. Because here's the practical step I want you to take. This is a big idea. Think about someone right now that you can actually go share this good news with. Right now. This, I mean, honestly, think about someone. And if you need to write that down so you don't forget after you leave today, do that. Who is someone that you can share the gospel with If every single one of us had buy-in to this reality that we experience unlimited grace and favor and love from God 24-7, we definitely go share that with someone else. I believe that. Your challenge this week is to go and tell. Go and tell. Because guess what? Here, here's the reality. Rejection is crossed out. It's not part of the equation. This is the beauty of grace, that God chose you. God chose you. (laughs) 
And again, the whole works thing. It's like Jonathan Edwards said, the, the only thing that we've contributed to salvation is our, necessary, is our sin, which was necessary to be forgiven. Okay? That's why it's not works-based. Because even if there was something we could do, God couldn't, wouldn't, and shouldn't forgive us. Because we're just not good enough. And so that's why God chooses you. And guess what? This is what I want to encourage you. That person you are thinking about right now, and hopefully you were thinking about someone who is, who's also been thinking about that person much longer than you? God. And I believe, who's also chosen that person in Christ if they put their faith in him? God. It's his grace that works. And we're, we're, we're just the bearers of the good news. We get to go out and actually share that with other people. And you know, I don't think it's going to be as hard as some missionaries that have come before us. Um, with the recent missionary that died over off the island the last week made me think about Jim Elliott all over again and how he went into this community, this tribe. And he believed in the unlimited, un, uh, unlimited love and grace of God and he thought, I've got to go tell someone about that. Didn't really work out for him. Well, he's in heaven, so I guess it did. But he went and shared that good news and it cost him his life. My hunch is that when you share with that person this week, whoever it was you're thinking about, it may not cost you your life. So there's, there's something encouraging. You can walk away. At least I'm not going to die when I share the gospel this week. That's cool. Okay, I can be encouraged in that. Okay? So here's the thing. Go out and do it then. Pick up your cross. Die to yourself. Pray for humility in the conversation. Get out there and share. Get out there and share. I'll close with how, we, with how we open. And Bonnie was talking to us and encouraging us that we're all missionaries. We all get this great privilege to actually go share the gospel that God doesn't reject his people, those who put their faith in him. And God is going to be gracious to them. We get to share that good news with people this week. Are you guys behind that? Like, do you guys want to go share the gospel, this good news that there's absolutely nothing that we can do to accept or receive, or to receive this on our own, in our own strength, in our own works? Nothing. And here's the thing, all day long, again, this is coming right off the heels of Romans chapter 10, God says, I stretch out my hands to a disobedient people. How far did God stretch out his hands? Jesus dying on the cross, saying this much, I love you this much. Pin me to the tree. I love you. I'll hang here. I'll die for you. That's what Christ has done. And that's the message that we get to share with someone this week. You guys, believe the good news. Believe it. Trust in a God that saved you, has saved you. Love him, give him thanks, and then go out and share that good news. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good to us. You're so good that you would choose us. And it says in your word, while we were still sinners, you died for us, Christ. I pray this week, God, I pray for those people that we were all thinking about right now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you go before us. That you would even right now, Jesus, as you said, the Holy Spirit would do, convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Prepare the heart, God. Make it a good heart, good soil, so that when we go and share your great love for people, that they would hear, that they would respond, 
and that they would choose to follow you, that they would put their faith in you, God. Help us to be patient in that. Help us to not be afraid to go share. Please, God, give us a strength. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for pouring out your grace on us. We didn't deserve it at all, but you still did it. So we thank you. And right now, I pray that we would respond in thanksgiving and that as we leave, we would respond and go and share the good news with other people. In Jesus' name, amen.